Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Putin's latest war of aggression against Ukraine is entering its second week. Though Canada and other countries have stepped up, can we do more? The latest survey done by Maru Public Opinion finds that Canadians are in near consensus. They stand with the people of Ukraine in full opposition to Russia's Vladimir Putin. Executive VP of Maru, John Wright, will join us to talk about those numbers. And gas prices hit another historic high today, and it's not stopping there. We'll give you all the details on that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Russian Federation is finding itself in more isolation, I guess, than probably ever thought was possible here on the international stage. United Nations General Assembly, of course, has voted in favor of condemning President Vladimir Putin's push into Ukraine. Global's Kyle Benning has the details. The result of the vote is as follows. 141 nations voted in favor of a United Nations declaration calling on Russia to end its invasion. Five countries voted against it, while about three dozen abstained. EU Ambassador Olaf Skoug says the military action disregards international law. The Russian government must immediately stop the aggression, withdraw its troops, and abide by the rules of the UN Charter that applies to all equally. The declaration does not have any power to force Russia to pull back troops. It comes after Russia vetoed a similar measure from the UN Security Council on Sunday. Kyle Benning, Global News. Just as a postscript to that, by the way, three of the five countries that voted against the resolution, uh, one was Russia, the other was Belarus, and then there was North Korea. So kind of gives you an idea as to where the mindset is on this. But are we doing enough? I mean, we've seen some of the pictures of the, the refugees flowing across the border into Poland and some making their way to other countries now. Uh, and we've heard our politicians, especially members of the uh, the government, uh, talking about the contributions they've both made militarily and, of course, when it comes to human aid. But could Canada do more? Well, there's an interesting essay. Uh, it's, uh, it appears in uh, thehub.ca uh, that talks about that and says Canada can still do more to help Ukraine and counter Putin. Uh, one of the authors of that piece is uh, Marcus Kolga, who is the director of disinfowatch.org and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. And uh, Marcus joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Marcus, good morning. Glad to have you with us on the program again. Thank you so much for having me on, Bill. I, I guess maybe the first message here, great piece, by the way, that uh, that you uh, wrote uh, with Brett Byers, uh, your co-author in this piece. It's gratifying to see the way our ministers have stood up here, and it's gratifying to see that, uh, that Canada is making a contribution. Uh, but we can't put the toolkit away just yet and say, well, we've done our share, can we? No, you're absolutely right. I, you know, as of this morning, uh, there are reports that there are there are now one million refugees who are fleeing Ukraine. Um, the latest uh, statistic on on casualties has a, the number at two thousand civilian deaths, and this is just in eight days. Um, you know, and this is just starting right now. Um, this is we're we're seeing a humanitarian catastrophe unfold. We are seeing uh, absolute clear evidence of war crimes. Um, the Russian government is indiscriminately shelling civilian infrastructure. There are pictures uh, that are being posted on media today of of apartment entire apartment blocks uh, just outside of Kiev uh, and in other cities um, destroyed. Um, this is a uh, you know Vladimir Putin's war is not just against the Ukrainian government's clearly uh, designed to decimate the Ukrainian people. Um, and yeah, our government uh, could be doing a lot more. Um, we've already done quite a lot. And I think they, um, they need to be congratulated for the steps they've taken so far. They've really worked very closely 
with the international community. My understanding, having, sp having spoken to uh, leaders in Europe, um, is that um, Christian Freeland really has um, demonstrated leadership and has led a lot of this effort on the world stage. She is doing an incredible job, and I think Canadians, all Canadians should be very proud of, of, of the work that she is uh, doing. Um, but we can do more. Uh, we haven't yet imposed sanctions on the corrupt Russian oligarchs who we know, and they've all been named over the past week. These people have assets totaling in the billions of dollars in this country. We need to target their assets. We need to freeze them. And um, because we know that this is working. Uh, I think Vladimir Putin's own reaction to sanctions, you know, he's, he said over and over again that sanctions don't matter. But every time we hit him with sanctions, he uh, shows up in media uh, and and gives a, a rambling, unhinged speech about, about the sanctions. Um, we know that sanctions are working because a number of oligarchs who until last week would not dare to criticize Vladimir Putin because they are allowed to operate with his blessing, um, they've come out and they've criticized the war. Um, they have posted images just last week. It was the seventh anniversary of the assassination of Russian pro-democracy activist Boris Nemtsov. They posted images of him. Boris Nemtsov is, was, of course, you know, one of Vladimir Putin's top enemies because he was a supporter of democracy. So those sorts of acts of defiance demonstrate that these, these oligarchs, they're feeling the pressure. They are sweating bullets. You know, the fact that the top oligarch, uh, Roman Abramovich, sold his shares in Chelsea Football Club yesterday tells you something. He knows what's coming. So, uh, so yeah, there's uh, in, in addition there's, there's to There's an some, interesting, there's an, I just yes. wanted to interrupt you because you, you were talking yeah, about, sure. you know, the freezing of assets. And I, I think there's probably a general acceptance that that's an idea. But in the piece, you also suggest actually going further than that with the Magnitsky uh, protocol and simply saying, you know, just don't just freeze them. You can seize assets according to that protocol. Uh, it's a bold move, but you know, this is this is a very very drastic situation that we're dealing with here. Yeah. So uh, the Magnitsky legislation does not uh, actually uh, uh, allow us to at the moment seize them, but there is a, a proposal uh, in the Senate right now to amend the legislation. And this should be passed very quickly. That would allow us to do specifically that. Um, this can be done, you know, literally if, if there's the will in Parliament, it can be done in, a, in the next week and a half. It would allow us to freeze those assets, and you're right, and seize them. Seize them, and then we could redistribute those assets as needed. And in this case, the cost of the, um, the refugee situation, the humanitarian catastrophe that's coming, is going to be incredibly high. So is the, it's going to be very expensive, obviously, to rebuild Ukraine after Russia uh, ends up destroying it. So, you know, seizing those assets, using them uh, almost as reparations uh, for, uh, for rebuilding Ukraine to take care of the humanitarian crisis, um, that's something that we definitely need to be looking at. Something that's in, in your wheelhouse, and you and I have had conversations about this in the past, of course, is the cyber war that's been ongoing. Uh, yeah. Some of the stuff that they're putting out there is, is simply ludicrous, you know. For, and and they, they repeated it here and yesterday that this is the message that's going out to the Russian people. Of course, is that this whole exercise here is to cleanse Ukraine of uh, the neo Nazis, uh, and they include Zelensky in that too. Who is not a Nazi? No, he's a, he's a Jewish president of the company, that country rather. 
Uh, but that's out there, and and we can't dismiss the impact that's having. Even though I, I don't think they're doing much in the way of the world community, and I don't know how many of the Russian people are actually buying into it. But it's a weapon that they use, and and unchecked, it's only going to get worse. And that's the cyber war that they're doing, the and the disinformation war. Yeah. So just on that narrative, it's it's uh, it's rather interesting because of its. Um, you know, the irrationality of it, so to speak. Uh, look, Vladimir Putin, uh, as we've talked about many times, is in a very precarious situation. Over the past 22 years that he's been in power, he's not delivered on any domestic pr uh, promises. Um, you know, uh, the municipal infrastructure in Russia has not been updated in 30 to 40 years. Incomes have been falling precipitously over the past 10 years. Um, the Russian people themselves have been rising up as well. Um, last January, uh, most recently, where, where Vladimir Putin violently had to put them down. So he needs to uh, have these sort of propaganda spectacles every once in a while to draw attention away from the fact that he's done nothing and that the Russian uh, uh, people are, are living in, in essentially squalor outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, and one of the uh, narratives that he uh, tries to deploy is the fact that there are enemies all around Russia, that he's the only one that can protect them. And he also uh, draws on World War II history, um, the Soviet struggle against the Nazis, and, and which was, you know, thankfully the, the Soviets defeated Hitler. But the fact is, is that he is trying to take this same narrative and apply it to the current situation. I was thinking about this last night, and I and I think that Vladimir Putin thinks that he's Joseph Stalin. Um, he's trying to create the same sort of a conflict with his people to try and sell them that the Ukrainians are like like the Nazi Germany, and and that President Zelensky, the the Jewish Ukrainian president of Ukraine, is like Adolf Hitler. It is um, it is unhinged. It is there is no connection to reality. And I think that the Russian people are starting to clue in, um, given the fact that they're, they're braving possible violent repression, they're cluing into this fact that Vladimir Putin may not be living in the same reality as, as we are. Um, and so, yeah, he continues to promote these narratives. The unfortunate fact for Canadians is that his representatives in Ottawa, at the embassy, are promoting these exact same narratives that Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, the president is a Nazi, that uh, Ukraine does not exist, it's not a legitimate country, nor is it a legitimate language. Um, and unfortunately, uh, some uh, outlets, some fringe outlets here in Canada are repeating those narratives too, which are extremely hateful, they're anti-Ukrainian, and intended to erode Canadian support um, for Ukraine and, uh, and to shift support over to the, to the Russian side. There's another element to your to your uh, your piece that I, I think is very controversial. I, I simply because there doesn't seem to be much of a mindset to this. Uh, but every time we have a NATO meeting, uh, the, invariably they talk about Canada's military strength or lack thereof, quite frankly. And if this doesn't sound as as, as a red flag, I, I, you know, to say, okay, we got to do something about this. And and you know they've been dragging their heels on this for years now, Mark. It's not just this administration, but previous administrations when it comes to yeah. defense spending. Germany yeah. just yesterday announced, that, hey, you know, we're stepping up. Uh, we're going to go and we're going to increase this because it's something that needs to be done now. Canada should be getting that same message, I think. Well, look, I, I think that we've been sleepwalking through the past 30 years. Um, you know, that post-Cold War era, you know, the, the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think that you know, we've been, our government, uh, our, our uh, academics, um, 
our diplomats have believed that it's, you know, that was the end of history in uh, 1991 that um, liberalism and democracy and human rights, those values that they dominated everywhere. And um, that's not been the case. And some of us have been warning about this uh, ever since Vladimir Putin came to power, that there is a rising threat of authoritarianism. That means that we need to take measures to, um, to address that and to defend our democracies. Uh, like we're seeing, you know, the assault that we're seeing in Ukraine right now. Ukraine is, is only the first country, the first territory that Vladimir Putin will will target. And he's been targeting our democracies uh, with information warfare. So we need to take better care. We need to increase our spending. We need to start working with NATO to ensure that we create a credible deterrent to stop Vladimir Putin. Because if that deterrent isn't there, he will continue marching westward. And that includes NATO nations. And Canadians should be very aware that Vladimir Putin has quietly been in, engaging in a mass militarization of the Arctic. Just last spring, his government uh, uh, claimed all of the natural resources underneath the entire Arctic Sea, right up until Canada's coastline for itself. They have also issued doctrines saying that they will, um, they will aggressively defend those claims. So this, this, what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is also appearing on our doorstep. And we need to be prepared to defend our sovereignty in the Arctic because it is under threat. And most importantly, Bill, I think that uh, right now what we need to start doing is defending our democracy against this information warfare that is happening, the, what, what I call cognitive warfare. This means uh, disinformation, lies, propaganda, and psychological warfare. This is, it, it's happening, it is intensifying. And we're, we're not prepared to defend ourselves against it. We need to do a heck of a lot more, both in the physical realm and also in this in the information space to protect ourselves. And I'm glad you brought up the Arctic situation because this is not a new problem. I mean, I can remember no. about eight or nine years ago reading about this in the New York Times. And they're, they're knocking at the door. I mean, they're, they're not saying, hey, we might show up there. There are troops up there already. And and as you say, the claim to, to mineral resources in that particular area. And and if they're not stopped in Eastern Europe, what's to, to say, okay, let's let's get this too. That's the next best thing. Their economy is hurting right now. You know, a big treasure trove of mineral resources in the Arctic is pretty appealing to them. Uh, and I, we can't simply, you know, say, "Well, we've got NORAD. We got the Americans have got our backs." Uh, past administrations, including the Biden administration, today have said, "Look, guys, you got to step up." And I think it's about time we got that message in Ottawa. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Bill, I, I hate to oversimplify things, but if we don't stop Vladimir Putin now, we're not going to stop him. You know, and this is the 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 front line right now is Ukraine, and we need to focus on that because. You know, if, if he doesn't, if we don't stop him here, he's going, like I said, he's going to continue his march westward. And just, you know, your point about the Arctic. I mean, Vladimir Putin has been developing crazy like James Bond-like super weapons um, for, specifically for, the, for use in the Arctic. He's created a, an underwater high-speed uh, nuclear torpedo. Now, why would you need that? Um, you know, this, this uh, torpedo is designed to uh, glide underneath the ice and irradiate entire massive swaths of, of our Arctic coastline for the next 10 to 20,000 years. Why would he be doing that? That is not a defensive kind of weapon. That is an offensive weapon. We need to wake up to this new reality. We need to, like you say, work with the U.S. to upgrade NORAD uh, because there are hypersonic missiles that are also being created by China and Russia. Um, and right now, 
you know, I don't want to say that we're defenseless. Um, you know, we are, we, we do have some defenses, but certainly in the Arctic, which is probably our most vulnerable border and coastline, um, we're not doing enough. We are open to this threat uh, and we need to start closing that gap very quickly. Absolutely. Marcus, as always, thank you so much for the time. Great piece on all. Uh, once again, remind our listeners to go and check it out online and uh, get all the details on that. Uh, stay well, my friend. We'll talk again soon. You too. Thanks for having me on. You betcha. Marcus Colgar, the director of disinfowatch.org. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get the latest on not just the refugee situation, which I think is very, very important, uh, but also, of course, what's happening uh, in the battlefield, sadly. And uh, that battlefield now has moved into a lot of the cities. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest for us. For nearly a week, Ukrainians have begun and ended their days unsure if they'll live to see the next. Show this to those in Russia. The city of Kharkiv was struck by aerial bombing on Wednesday after a blast destroyed its Freedom Square on Tuesday. They all have orders to erase our history, erase us all, said Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The country's democracy has been compromised, leaving the world's diplomats rushing to resolve the crisis. The Ukrainian and foreign citizens have become hostages of the Russian armed aggression. After days of emergency meetings, the United Nations formally adopted a resolution to hold Russia accountable. For Russia, this was a war it believed would lend to an immediate victory. But resistance has been strong and logistics problematic. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So how are Canadians feeling about what's going on, uh, about the, uh, the sanctions that are being imposed at this stage and how effective they may or may not be? Well, uh, thankfully, our, our good friends at uh, Maru Public Opinion have uh, been talking to us over the last little while and getting a, a sense of, of where Canadians are on this. And uh, to give us the details on that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program John Wright, who is the Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Bill, always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, as always, uh, your numbers tell a story here. Uh, you know, we got the sense of this already, that Canadians seem to be overwhelmingly in favor of the fact that Canada has stepped up uh, to help out uh, with Ukraine's uh, situation right now, the war that's going on, and even with the refugee situation. But uh, I'm, I'm getting the sense that as you dig a little deeper here, we're a little sh- nervous and not quite sure exactly where this is going to lead and, and how deeply we should get into it. Yeah, and I have new numbers sitting in front of me, which I'm happy to talk about that are not sure. being pub- published until the weekend. But I, I have been asked to do an op-ed in the National Post about what it all says, because you can you can find a lot of numbers and sometimes it takes a lot of analysis to kind of say, well, this is what it means. Other times it just takes a clarion call or statement to sum it all up and everybody goes, yeah, that's what it means. And then other times it deserves a metaphor. So I'm going to draw on a metaphor, if I might, for a moment. Yeah. I, I, my my parents had some very dear friends and um, they were my godparents. And uh, we called them aunt and uncle because they were that dear friends. And I remember my aunt who was uh, diagnosed with um, with cancer at one point. And I remember entering the room in some of the final days that she was alive and we loved them very dearly. But I remember that one day at Princess Margaret coming in and my uncle was sitting at the end of the bed and my aunt was propped up in bed and they were just staring at each other. That was it. They were just looking at each other. And, and I, I, I didn't even say anything. I just, they didn't even notice me. I went and I sat down in a chair and I just watched them for the longest time until they were comfortable and talking to me. But the metaphor to me in looking at the numbers today and everything accumulated struck me 
because there was an unspoken grimness about the whole thing, a whole sense of inevitability that while we were rallying the cause, while we were all saying the right things about, about, you know, we, we stand with you. We love you. We'll, we'll do anything to help you. The doctors were all saying all the right words and everything. There was that crystallizing moment when the tripwire, the odds just, became inevitably too big a gulf to pass. And so the sentiment that I get in all of the numbers today, the thing that you divine from the emotion of a country is as follows. 74% of us are watching this very closely. I mean, it's on television, it's in the radio, it's living rent-free in our brain every single moment. We are watching the destruction of a country in real time, unlike other places like Afghanistan or Syria, where there's, you know, it seems like such a foreign country and they don't have yeah. the communications, but we are watching and listening and, and feeling it and hearing from people real time on TikTok and every other outlet that you can find. And in the public, 91% on the weekend said we stand with the Ukrainian people and against the tyranny of, of uh, the Russian invasion. And today it's 92%. So nothing has faltered, but one thing has. Because as you look through the numbers and you find that we would do almost anything willing, there is a tripwire. And, and it effectively is the belief that Vladimir Putin would use nuclear warheads, that there, you know, it's, it's not a bluff. It's real. That two-thirds of us believe that. Two-thirds believe that we're staring down the barrel of World War III. And only 13%, therefore, say we would send our troops across the border to save these people. Even if there was a threat of nuclear war, uh, half of the public instead sides with, no, let's send them weapons, but let's keep our distance. Another group say basically, well, just a quarter of them say, let's just do the economic sanctions and not even send them the weapons. And then a small number, roughly 20%, say, you know what, we, we shouldn't be involved now. We should just disengage from the whole thing. And that took me back to that metaphor where our, our singing of the national anthems at our hockey games, our outpouring of deep sympathy, our support for all these measures is actually underneath all of this is just this sense of great dread of a great futility that we're watching something unfold that we can't do anything about. And I think that is the futility that we're going to find in the next number of days. I guess if I were to project forward, because you and I have listeners, you know, who tune in, it's kind of like, what do we do with that? Uh, you know, I'm surprised that there is not a, a, even a more physical reaction to the Russians in this country, the, the diplomats and others, because there is a rage, there is a deep concern about it. But for the people of Ukraine... There's great voice and great sympathy, but there's this sense that there's only so much that we can do. And it's almost like it's almost like a love letter. You know, it's bittersweet. It, it, it says, I wish I could be with you, but I can't. And, you know, I can't. And there you go. So I, that, I guess that's what I divine from numbers this morning. It's it, it's bittersweet about a forlorn circumstance and I'm not giving up. I hope that the sanctions work as as do every other Canadian who's engaged with this, but it, there's just a sense of inevitability here that's below the surface, and it's pretty grim. And I feel the exact same way, and I'm hearing that from our listeners, and, and I've seen a, a certain consistency, as, as you guys do with your numbers, John. I, from a personal standpoint, you know, the, the word that comes to mind most often as I'm watching the coverage is frustration. 
I know it's sincere, you know, getting uh, the uh, Ukrainian choir out to sing at the hockey game in Winnipeg. Great. That's a show of support. The rallies in downtowns uh, right across the country. Fabulous. Uh, you know, the money that's being sent by the government. That's great. But we're sitting here watching a house burn down and mm-hmm. we're not doing anything about it. Uh, it's kind of like, well, we're not allowed to. I mean, we can sit here and watch it. Uh, I want to reach out. I think we should reach out. But um, well, the rules say we can't. And, you know, th- those are just the rules. And, and the, yeah, but the other guy's not playing by the rules. doesn't matter. We can't do that. And, and th- I think that's causing a great deal of angst and frustration. Uh, and even among a number of Ukrainian people that I've talked to and have been in contact with me over the program over the last little while, uh, they're sensing that too. And we saw that from President Zelensky in the first couple of days. You know, <laughs> I don't care what NATO says and what the rules are. Please come and help us. I think he's given up asking at this stage because basically what we're saying is we're here for you, we support you, but guys, are, you're on your own. And I, that's, I'm not comfortable with that message. Well, I think it's a case of we're not going to abandon them. That's, I mean, that's another finding from this. The question is, how do we stay engaged with them? And I think you, you I mean, you've, you've raised a really important metaphor to countermine, and that is if you have a burning house, it's fully engaged. Do you run in and rescue people or do you keep your own life safe? If it's your children, people will hold you back because you will go into that burning house and you will try to do something, but you may perish as well. So there is this immense frustration. I think there's also an immense, I don't, I'll pick my words very carefully, uh, almost hatred of, of Vladimir Putin and what has happened. And it's not about our insecurities. It's about what is happening to a genuinely, um, gracious and heroic and noble people who are being cowardly destroyed or destroyed in cowardice. They they are valiant, but you know how it's go- being done is 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 terrible. I think the other thing too, I say to a friend the other day. I mean, with the most tragic thing for me is I I scroll through TikTok because my kids got me on it a long time ago, and now I'm kind of addicted at nighttime. You kind of scroll through it, and here's what I find is the most terrible thing. And we do find this when people have Facebook accounts and they pass away and then they're kind of forgotten, but you trip upon them some days and you see, you go through and you can see their lives suddenly come to a halt. When you look on the TikTok, what do you find now in your feeds? If you like watching anything about the Ukraine, there are young people who were enjoying their lives 10 days ago, who were out shopping, who were dancing, who were with their friends, who were enjoying a certain kind of life. And then all of a sudden it stops. And then couple of days later and now for the last four or five days it it's looking out of windows and seeing troops and crying and 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 being forlorn and being upset it is it's incredible in real time to not only see this but we also have access to lives that lived a week ago where none of this seemed possible and it is now happening so again i go back to the question and that is it you know if we are not going to abandon these people it is being seared into our minds the the nature of what is happening on that side of the world and we are building up this frustration and deep resentment what do we do with that and you know i don't think we turn inwards and say when the prices rise that you know we're we're going to abandon the cause because you know our milk is a little bit more expensive or our oil fuel is i mean it's, it's made that much of an impression but what do we do with this because it's not going to be over for some time yet. And so I, I don't know what public opinion will say a month from now, but what I do sense is right now that there's a tripwire. It's grim. 
And it's almost like we just want to hold people's hands and at the same time, shut down bank accounts, do all that sort of stuff. But there's, there's an inevitability to this that seems to be setting in. And, and I think that's the ultimate frustration here is and not only mm-hmm. we're not doing it probably as much as we should. And I'm not suggesting, you know, we send troops over <coughs> there tomorrow. That's going to be a NATO decision, not a Canadian decision, uh, if in fact that should happen. And I don't know that we're there yet. Uh, but I see the same stories. I you know, watched on MSNBC yesterday afternoon, uh, and uh, Nicole Wallace was interviewing. I, I, she looked like she was about twenty twenty one. She'd just gotten over the border uh, into Poland. She spent the last four days in a basement, hearing nothing mm-hmm. but shells mm-hmm. exploding around her, uh, and found out that when he, she finally did get an escape route, the two of her friends were in the building uh, a couple of stores down, died because uh, of the bombs hit them. That's a stark reality. I mean, there's, you know, we've got daughters that age, and I'm figuring, my God, look at and she, and she was in shock, post-traumatic stress, clearly. Uh, you you can't relate to that. That's not something we're used to seeing. I know, and I know, I'm not naive. I, as you mentioned, I know it's, it's happened in Afghanistan, it's happened in Syria, it's happened in so many other places, but you don't tend to think of it going on in, in, in the Western world. And, and you look at the shots of, of places like Kiev, and you figure that's that's a city, just like a lot of Canadian cities. And, and it's being destroyed, and the people in it are being destroyed. But history has its way of, of, of not only repeating itself, but bringing these feelings forward. Um, I remember going through um, the Great War Museum in downtown London, England, and uh, I'm, at a, I, I, I'm very interested in, in how we fight wars and things like that. And if you go onto the top floor, it's about the Holocaust, um, the top two floors, mm-hmm. six and five. And you get to that, you know, the, the, the entranceway to the Holocaust exhibit is, is very, very big when you walk in. And then it has a turning point. There is a single yellow bench, which is in a very small room, and you go and sit in that bench. And what it signifies is that the Germans, uh, the Nazis, let's make that distinction, at some point um, colored all the benches in parks, uh, certain ones yellow, and only the Jewish people could sit in those benches. And when you sit on that bench, you look around the room, it's all of the rights that were stripped away. It's all in that room. And you can see in the early 1930s where they became non-person. So you're sitting in this bench and then you go down to the next floor and you walk through and it's all the, the terrible stuff. The Auschwitz is the big model you walk into until you, you go to the end of it and there's a very small door and you walk through it. And the entire thing is a metaphor for the, the, the Jewish population who were in Europe at the time and everybody saw what was going on. And then they walked out of a door at the very end. It was very, very small. It's an incredibly powerful exhibit. But we, we think we're experiencing something for the first time when, in fact, if you are of Jewish heritage or if you are of any heritage that's suffered some kind of genocide, this is a very familiar thing. This is what the world has gone through, but perhaps we didn't identify as much with this, and there's lots of reasons for that. But today in the world, there's this sense of inevitability and and there's not this kind of I told you so, but there are lessons from history. And so it's a feeling to be, um, you know, to be held upon. It, it's a feeling to be used for something. And I'm not sure what at this stage in World War II, it took a long time before the troops watched, you know, walked in and liberated uh, other countries. I don't know whether we can do that at this stage, but I do want to say this, that the numbers are optimistic that there is a resolve 
that this is not going to be abandoned. So even though there may be stages here in which we feel it's it's impossible for us to do what our hearts or minds think we should do, there are alternatives that the Canadian public fully embrace and that this is not going away anytime soon. So I think if that's the optimism you can take from that, I think we should. I mean, that's that it is what it is. It's not like we're turning our back. No, 80% of the public in this country um, absolutely and fully support, you stand with the Ukrainian people and want to do something. In fact, the, the polls will show tomorrow on Saturday that three quarters of us um, would welcome our doors to 200,000 refugees um, to come into this country right now. But I think it's also important to point out that south of the border, the sentiment is virtually the same. And in 200,000 refugees would be accepted there tomorrow with the same numbers. And the sentiment on all of these other matters are virtually the same, too. So we're not alone, but it certainly is a very grim hour in our history, that's for sure. Well, it is, and especially the, the number that jumped out at me from the poll that uh, that you guys released uh, the other day. Uh, 77% of Canadians actually think that uh, that NATO, if they can't deter this, it's only going to embolden Putin. And I think the realization here is uh, this is where, where we're going to have to make a stand, uh, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a, not just as a nation, not just as NATO, but the Western world. And, you know, the implications here, you mentioned obviously our Arctic situation here with the Russian incursion there. Uh, you know, China's looking at this and they have, they have, uh, you know, uh, well, they've been eyeing Taiwan for the last little while and, and stuff they were doing in Hong Kong and so many other places. There's got to be at some point say that's enough. We're not taking this anymore. And I, I, I don't know what that's going to lead to. And I know that the, it was a divided opinion when you asked Canadians about that, too. We're not quite sure what the future holds here. And that's that's kind of frightening. Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd say about China, and I've actually been to China, spent two weeks there <clears throat> in 2018. China is uh, a genie out of the bottle. It is a Yes, it's an absolute totalitarian state, but it is so materialistically driven and it's about natural resources and money and that sort of stuff. I think what's given pause to the Chinese in the last uh, week has been the economic sanctions on Russia. It does not want that. It also sees the, uh, the, the, the total freezing out of Russia. Vladimir Putin and Russia are very different people. They will stop at virtually nothing because history is to take over countries and hold them within their satellite the Chinese will be different, but the bottom line is for all of us on this side of the divide, and that is grim weapons, great threats, um, the desire to help people, and, you know, that phrase, you know, it, it, so close and yet so far. John, look forward to your piece this weekend in the, in the Post, and uh, thanks, as always, for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Bill, thanks so much for having me on. My best to you. You too. John Wright, Executive VP of uh, Maru Public Opinion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's get right into it. This is the issue everybody is talking about. Uh, and that's, of course, the price of gas went up at midnight. And uh, a lot of folks are upset about that. Uh, the average prices here, well, it depends on which area you're looking at now. But it's about a buck 65 to buck 70, depending on where you are. And uh, Dan McTagg, who's been a guest on this program many times, uh, says he's the president, by the way, of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing going on right now about this uh, this rather huge increase. But he says uh, there's actually a couple of places where you should actually point the blame. Russia's attack of Ukraine has everything to do with it. Russia is the third largest producer of oil and uh, nations that have become reliant, far too reliant, I would say, especially 
uh, places like Europe, uh, to a lesser extent, even the United States, which, uh, while it cancelled the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have brought in a million barrels a day, now relies on almost 800,000 barrels a day from Russia. As long as this dependence uh, had continued, this, the alternative just isn't there. So as we sanction uh, Russia, uh, its oil and gas, uh, it leaves the world extraordinarily short of supply. Uh, that's it in a nutshell, but I, I know that there's still other factors involved in this and, and a lot of questions. For instance, is this just the beginning uh, of uh, a series of increases? Uh, talk about this. We're so pleased to welcome to the program Michael Manjuris, who is a professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill, for having me and good morning. Good morning to you as well. Uh, there are a couple of phrases I think have become part of our lexicon over the last 18 months or so, and that is supply chain and supply and demand. I mean, even if we didn't pay much attention to economics, we certainly are now. Is what we saw last night and what we're probably going to uh, see for the next little while really just a circumstance of that I mean, supply and demand and, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, I guess the, the cryptic way of looking at that, Michael, is, uh, you know, them that have the supply can demand what they want for it. I mean, the price of oil has gone up globally, hasn't it? It has. And as a matter of fact, I'm looking at a chart right now, which indicates that uh, the, the benchmark uh, crude oil that we look at in North America, it's called West Texas Intermediate or WTI. The price of that crude per barrel right now is, and I mean, when I say right now, I mean at 10.09 this morning, is uh, roughly $110 for a barrel. And that's very significant. Just to give everybody a sense, Bill, at the, at the um, uh, beginning of the, of the uh, COVID pandemic, we were paying, you know, something like $40, $35, $40 a barrel. Uh, there was a point in the pandemic where there was so much oil oil companies were paying people to take their oil. So it was less than, if you wish, less than zero. That's where we were at the beginning. Where we are now uh, is, is not just a direct result of, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Certainly that's uh, caused the price of oil to spike. But we had, as you and I have mentioned before in other segments on your show uh, previously, you know, we've had problems with supply chain management and, and the ability for supply to meet demand. You, you mentioned one about the Keystone Pipeline. And, and those are sort of longer term structural issues that we've got to consider. Somehow we're going to solve. Well, and there's a couple of realities, I guess, more than a couple, really. First of all, even those that are advocating alternative sources of energy, uh, that's that's great. That's a debate we need to have. And I, I, I like to think that we're making some strides in that, but we're not finished with fossil fuels yet. Uh, no, nor we won't be for quite some time at this stage. And every time we have, uh, well, as they mentioned in the report there, something like the Keystone canceled. And, and of course, now there's the talk about the, the pipeline going under Lake Michigan and whether or not they're going to shut that down. Uh, that product has to get to, to market somehow. And if, if it's an increased cost, that's going to have an impact on that, too. It's, it's not just supply. It's how that supply gets to market, isn't it? That's exactly right. You're referring to the Line 5, the, the yeah. uh, Bridge Line 5 that supplies uh, the majority of oil to us here in central Canada. So that's us here in Ontario, but also in Quebec. Um, and, and our infrastructure has, in terms of supply in North America has heavily relied on pipelines. And the reason is pipelines traditionally are the lowest cost form of transportation for petroleum products and also raw materials like crude oil or natural gas. And if you actually look at their safety record, you know, in terms of, um, you know, having a problem, a spill or something like that, they're not perfect. I'm not suggesting at all that they're perfect, but they're actually very good and they're much better than other forms of transportation. So as that form of, of um, distribution is limited, then we have to look at other alternatives like rail or truck 
That's a more expensive form of transportation. And with their own energy costs climbing, we're going to see increase in costs again happen. So everything is pointing to, you know, gasoline, home heating fuel, natural gas, all going up in the near future. And and there's a a pattern to this anyway, wasn't there? I know Dan McTeegan his comments there. I was talking about the war, and I, I agree. I mean, anytime there's a, a global conflict like this, I mean, we we tend when markets get unsure of what's going to be happening, uh, we pay the price for it as consumers, and I think we should all be aware of that, if not used to it at this stage. But we were heading up anyway as the price of oil started to increase once again. I mean, these 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 increases that we're talking about, and maybe uh, another one by the weekend, we're told now. I don't want to say they're inevitable, but I mean, it's not as if they came out from nowhere. We saw this happening, didn't we? Well, we did. Uh, we were expecting, I think, increases. Dan, by the way, is very good at, at what he does. He's one of the best in the world. Um, and that's why when when he talks and he gives us numbers, I think we can be uh, fairly confident that those numbers are something we can rely on. There, there's no question that we we're going to see increases happening anyway. But those increases were going to be two to three cents at a time. As we shift from uh, sort of winter fuels to summer grade fuels, we always every year see a climb of 10 to 15%, uh, sorry, 10 to 15 cents a liter. And that usually comes back off in the fall. So we're about to be, you know, have that increase in gauge as well, sometime in April or early May, earlier in British Columbia, as you heard. And just to give everybody a sense of the kind of numbers we're going to see at the pump, you know, I, I'm predicting that we're going to see $2 a liter I hate to say this, $2 a litre for regular gasoline here in the sort of GTA, GTHA area. Probably mid-March to late March, which is extraordinary. And then April 1st, we get if it, if it continues to be implemented, we'll have two cents additional cost because uh, the carbon tax from the federal government will be implemented. So that's another two cents there. And I think, unfortunately, we'll start to see as we then uh, as refineries then uh, move over to the production of summer grade fuel, we're going to see another five to cents, five to seven cents on top of that moving forward into late April, early May. So everything's pointing to significant increases. And it, it, there's no question it's driven by the invasion, the Russian invasion into uh, Ukraine. It's just not great news. I don't have great news today, Bill. Well, I want to connect a couple of dots if I could here, though, Michael. And, and that's the, the politicization, I guess, of what's going on. And you've seen the comments already from some of the, uh, the elected officials. Some still want to blame the federal government for this. Patrick Brown, I guess, wrote to to the prime minister saying, you know, don't do not do that carbon increase at the end of this month. Uh, as you mentioned, it's against two cents. I mean, that's it's almost insignificant. I mean, there's a principle involved here, maybe. And I think Patrick Brown's letter had a lot more to do with the fact that he's considering running for the conservative leadership than it did. Because if, if people with long memories, and I still have one, thankfully, he advocated a, a carbon tax when he wanted to be premier of this province, when he was head of the Ontario PCs. So I, I, I think there's a lot of politics involved in that. But we have to look at this in a greater standpoint of saying, look, at this is going to happen anyway. And and I invariably we, and we get tied into this conversation about maybe we've been living on borrowed time here in North America because just about everybody else in the world is paying a lot more to fill up their cars than, than we have been in North America for the longest time. That's correct. Even with these increases. So I did a calculation. If you think of a $2 a liter, if you drive a pickup truck or any large luxury car that has a fairly large size gas tank, you're looking at $140 Canadian fill up. To fill up a small, a smaller car, I, I, I think of a, maybe a Honda Accord or something of that nature in Germany, 
you're already paying about 120 to 125 euros, which puts it at about 160, 180 Canadian. So that's for a smaller vehicle. So your point is well taken, Bill, that we are living on borrowed time. But a, a, another piece of that is that borrowed time is that, you know, over the last couple of decades in Canada on the supply side, we've reduced, um, you know, refining capacity in Canada and become more reliant on um, refineries in the United States. And as a result, that's tightened the supply of petroleum products to all of North America. So when there's a hiccup, if I can politely call it that, something like a geopolitical event like Russia invading the Ukraine or climate change that affects the ability for crude oil to make it to our shores, then suddenly we have a, a, a tightening of supply. So instead of a gradual tightening of supply, something that is more predictable, we're not seeing that anymore. It's become far more volatile. So we're seeing price swings that are much greater than they used to be before. And I don't see that changing in the near future because we're not making any significant investments in um, increased refining capacity or increased pipeline capacity. And I understand that. I understand that you know, with climate change issues and environmental issues, we're trying to get off hydrocarbons. But as you pointed out earlier on, that's not going to be instantaneous. And somehow we have to manage both until we transition to an economy that is less reliable on hydrocarbons. Yeah, I mean, we have to get out of the, the hypothetical and, and, you know, and into the, the pragmatic here. Uh, and I'm all on side with this. I think it's great that the Ontario government, it looks like Doug Ford has had this conversion on the road to Damascus and he's believing in EVs now. And that's good. That's fabulous. Uh, he wasn't like that when he first got elected. I remember he canceled a lot of the charging stations at that time, just didn't believe in the, the technique. So that's good. But I, I'm not so sure, Michael, that we're going to jump from, from here to there as quickly as a lot of the experts seem to think. Uh, you know, I, I've... I could see, for instance, hybrids. In other words, we want to go in. Well, we'll go into the pool with you, but we're going in the shallow end first. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how this goes and where the technology goes. Uh, I know ultimately we're going to get there. But in the meantime, we still have to have fossil fuels. That's that's a reality that uh, that every government official, I think, has to, to come to the realization that this is the way it's going to have to be. And, and to your point about refineries, uh, and that ties in with line five, by the way, because, you know, if it doesn't get into Sarnia there, I don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, is that a government decision or is that the, the private sector, the people that own these things that are simply saying we're not investing in Canada? Well, no, I think it's both. I think the, the uh, private companies will invest in Canada if the uh, economic environment is appropriate. And it won't be appropriate unless we have a government will that does exactly what you're trying to, trying to, to tell your listeners is that we have to be pragmatic. I put time frames on uh, a little bit on what you say. I don't think we're going to transition over any earlier than the year 2035. So it's a gradual change from now to then. But in between, we still have to run an economy. We still are reliant on fossil fuels. We continue to be reliant on fossil fuels, just less so. Could it ramp up faster? Sure, if the technology gets developed, but it's not getting developed faster. And so in order for us to get there and to be whole when we get there, we have to consider this transition piece. And part of that is, we have to now become more reliant on ourselves for the production of petroleum products and for the use of hydrocarbons in a very smart way. You know, I, I've, I've pointed out often to my class, but even to others um, in the business community that we used to have in Canada back in the 1980s, we had over 45 refineries across Canada. Now we have less than 16. And I'm not saying that's all bad. Some of those refineries, you know, were due to be de decommissioned because they were simply old technology. But there was no uh, sort of concerted effort or federal plan 
to ensure that the refining capacity across the country was large enough to satisfy not only our needs sort of in a steady state economics uh, timeframe, but when things were going to change, either supply or demand changes significantly, which is what we're seeing right now. Just in all this time I've been talking to you, the price of crude oil has gone up $2 a barrel, which is just, it, it, it's insane that in 10 minutes it goes up $2. And, and we're seeing this kind of volatility because we're seeing volatility in the world. We haven't sheltered ourselves uh, in, in the past by planning, um, you know, like I say, enough capacity so that we don't get affected in the same manner. That has to change. It does. I got about a minute left, but I got to ask you to address one other thing, too. They, they d- debated this in Queen's Park yesterday, as you might have expected, and it got a little silly, as it often does in question period. And I know the NDP are promos- proposing a motion right now to say we're going to put a cap on, on how high this can go. Uh, they don't control the world markets. Uh, and we saw that happen when uh, Ernie Eves was the premier years ago and said, I'm going to cap electricity prices because they're just getting too high. Somebody's got to pay for that. I mean, all you're doing is increasing the debt if you do that, aren't you? Well, yes and no. If you cap the price and um, the government pays the price, pays the extra so that we don't have to pay it at the pump, then we pay through taxes or through you know servicing yeah. a debt. If we say to the uh, oil companies, sorry, we're going to cap it and you pay the cost, then they'll simply invest elsewhere and not in Canada. So it's not a good idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you say, if it's a buck twelve a barrel right now, you can't cap it and say, well, we're not even going to recognize it. That increase is there. You can't make it go away. You can't wish it away. And, no. and what, that's what did to my example about hydro. That's what ended up happening, of course. Everybody's happy that, hey, they've capped the price. Our hydro bills aren't going to go up. But increase that we're still paying for that. And I always say with politicians, I'll end on this note, you know, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. And, and that's, that's what we have to be cognizant of. Uh, Michael, it's advice. always great to have you on the program. I always appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for this today. And once again, thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. You bet. Take care. Professor Mike Banjuris uh, from the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.